Welcome to the Ramble Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Primus, father, entrepreneur, filmmaker, athlete, hopeful writer, and dedicated wanderer. I'm curious to learn more about how people live their lives, their struggles, and passions, and pains. So every week, with athletes, entrepreneurs, healers, adventurers, and beyond, I'm going to have unbound and uncensored long-form conversations about people, places, pursuits, and performance. Enjoy. Hello, lovely people. Welcome back to The Ramble. I have a very cool cat with me today. His name is Bennett R. Coles, and he is an award-winning author, a naval officer, an ordained priest, and owner of a boutique author services company. He's traveled the world many, many times, which we'll talk about, (laughs) closed a few big deals in his time, and worked for the United Nations forbidden from actually going into space by his wife, she says is dangerous, he began writing novels about space adventures that drew on his military experience. Born in Winnipeg and raised in Ottawa, he experienced more than enough winter and fled to Canada's west coast. He lives in beautiful Vancouver Island at his earliest opportunity where he maintains his home base and has maintained his home base for more than 30 years. Other than a brief stint which allowed us to meet each other in the Fraser Valley, And he's been happily married to Emma for 16 years, and they've enjoyed family life with their two growing boys and their two scheming cats. Boy, do I have a cat story for you. Mr. Coles, welcome to the podcast. Primus, it's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) Man, we have, so full disclosure to my listeners, Ben and I wrote a book together called Getting Naked, and... No, not that type of book. I got to finish the sentence or the title. Otherwise, it's called Getting Naked, The Bare Necessities of Entrepreneurship and Startups. And it is about, in part, a company that Ben was a significant investor of, as well as the chairman of, that I had founded. And, uh, And so we know each other, but man, what has it been, like two years? Since the since the book launched? No, since we since we last had a conversation. Well, yeah. Well, there was this thing called COVID that came along and just kind of stopped everything. So yeah, yeah, probably about two years, I I would say. Yeah. And, and the last time we spoke, uh, and this is by the way, we we didn't have a falling out or anything, like you said, COVID and things just things just got crazy. But the last time we spoke, you have you have your author services company. You'd had you'd had a publishing company. We just finished writing our book and we'd released it. But you were about to become a chaplain in the military. Yeah. So what happened with that? Like, how did remind me how that even came about in the first place? And and where is that at? Yeah. Well, it all came from like way back, like when when you were in in elementary school, and I was actually in the navy. Uh, as a naval officer, and uh, you know, I did my did 15 years in the Navy, and it was great fun. And then in my early 30s, I thought, okay, it's time to get out and do something different. And so I left the Navy happily, went into business, you know. And uh, I said, we eventually met, uh, you know, working at the newspaper, and uh, and I, I sort of was on a completely different trajectory with my life. I was doing business stuff, I was writing books, I was doing all that. But I always felt uh, a call towards going into ministry. You know, I'm actively involved in my church and was not half bad at public speaking. So I would occasionally, you know, do the guest sermon. They always picked 
by the way, they always pick um, Labor Day weekend because that historically was the lowest attendance of any Sunday in the year. So, that, well, how much harm can he do? Sure, let Ben <laughs> let, let Ben preach on on that Sunday. So, and, and, there, and thereafter, all your Labor Day weekends. Every one of them. Every one of them. Yeah, I was always preaching. Well, 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 the main priest is is off enjoying some extra time. Off Absolutely. Your- yeah. See, it was win-win. Everybody, everybody won. Um, and so I, I was interested in maybe going into ministry, but I also knew that it's it's a hard thing to get into a little later in life because, you know, you got to go back to school and, you know, I have to work. I got a mortgage to pay and I can't really afford to go back to school for four years. And it's hard to get a job. Also, being a man, my first job in any uh, church would have been as the youth pastor, because that's how it works. If you're a woman, they make you a children's pastor. If you're a man, they make you a youth pastor. And I have discovered over or just in Canada. Uh, I, well, certainly across North America and Britain. Yeah. Like you never get to walk into being a lead pastor. You know, you just have to, you got to start at the bottom, do your time. And if you're a man, that means youth pastor. And I have discovered over the years that being a leader of youth is not really my superpower. And I don't think that would have worked out well for anybody. So, so I thought, okay, well, going into the, into the, the priesthood isn't really an option. And then one day it just hit me wait a second, the military, they need chaplains. Maybe I could do that. So I reached out. Long story short, it was a great program. The military said, absolutely, you can come back in and we'll pay for your uh, theological education and then we'll get you set up as a chaplain. So great. So uh, yeah. So I guess last we talked, I was just finishing up my Master of Divinity uh, on, on Her Majesty's Dime and uh, getting ready to start serving as a chaplain. And so that was that was all good. Uh, it, it was kind of a surprise. Again, hadn't expected life to go that way, but just, you know, doors open sometimes in life. And you think, yeah, this makes sense. You know, discussed it with Emma and uh, we all agreed it's a good plan. So, so there I was. And I guess that was two years ago. Yeah, I was well on the way to being a chaplain. Um, but of course, things have changed again, right? Because this is life and yeah. life changes. And yeah, so what happened just last year, the Navy, which is what I used to work for, the Navy came calling because they are desperately short for people with my specialization that I had years ago. Which and is I saw that, yeah. oh, uh, uh, above water warfare. So the missiles and guns on the ship, you know, things that go boom and whoosh. And uh, uh, they said, uh, Ben, we really need you back. You know, the, there's lots of chaplains. The chaplaincy is full. We are pretty short we really need you back so the chat the chaplains aren't on the missiles and guns is what you're saying that's <laughs> right yeah yeah <laughs> just to clarify thing yeah 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 the chaplains are not allowed to handle the missiles and guns but just um, just as a quick uh, another side do they do any active is there any active i don't want to use the word combat because, but is like, would they step outside of the the the, the service of uh, being the, the 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 pastor or the priest in in the military environment? Do they are they on the front line of, of any battle or on any mission or, or no? Yeah, they're the chaplains deploy with the army and the navy and the air force all over the world, and they'll be in combat zones. They're just not combatants, right? right? So you'll never see a chaplain with a gun in his or her hand. It'll be they'll be there supporting them, you know, giving, you know, sort of counseling support and spiritual support. And uh, they're part of the part of the background crew, the support, the frontline fighters. Um, 
and yeah, every ship, if they deploy overseas, they take a chaplain with them for sure. Um, so I was, I was still probably going to get no shortage of action. I just wouldn't have been the one doing any of the shooting. I'm going to say I wasn't going to be the one getting shot at. There's no guarantee, but I wouldn't have been doing any of the shooting anyway, but the Navy really needed people with my qualification. So they offered me a pretty sweet deal and they were really nice to me. And, uh, the biggest key was that we could stay here on the West Coast because then, of course, the Navy's on the coast and uh, chaplains can go anywhere. So, yeah, as of October, I actually uh, put my old Navy uniform back on and um, am an above water warfare officer again. So you talk about paths you don't expect to go down, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the career that I left um, 16 years ago, I never, ever thought I was going to come back to it. But here we are. And, uh, That's uh yeah, people ask me, does this happen often? I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure I am unique. Yeah. And, uh, people in the Navy can't believe that I came there's, back, but there's uh, only one guy I, I get the, this, uh, this like, you know, this action movie scene where they call on, there's only one guy good enough for the job. That's Bennett goals. That's right. Back. You think where's Bennett today? <laughs> well, he's actually living the family life, <laughs> you know, and, but oh, that's, yeah, well, uh, it's classic. Yeah. Well, I believe he's a priest now. Yeah. So <laughs> we need him back. Yeah. Oh, I, could, I could totally see it. Yeah. But the, well, one, I guess my first question is that is why are they so short? Is it just there's no interest in the youth or is the recruitment process broken? Like where, and is, and is this just a Canadian problem? Is it a US problem too? Yeah. I mean, good questions. And just because of the, unique responsibilities I carry as an officer in the Royal Canadian Navy. I can't really comment too specifically on on those things. Short answer is I don't really know. They're certainly doing a lot of recruiting. And from a retention point of view, like when people get to sort of mid-level career, you know, people often change careers nowadays. And that's nothing to do with the military. That's just people get into their into their thirties and maybe they've been doing something for 10 years. Like, man, I've kind of done this. I want to do something else now. And I can't criticize it because I did when I was in my early 30s. I left the Navy and went and did something else. So I think it may just be that we live in a the society these days where people don't usually stick with one career mm-hmm. for 40 years. They go and do other things. And so people will often leave after 10 or 15 years to go do something mm-hmm. else, which unfortunately in a an organization like the military, that hurts because all of your experienced people are leaving now and you can replace them with new people, but it takes them years to get up that level of experience. So it's a challenge for sure. So anyway, they were very happy, happy for to me get, to come back. Get, oh, yeah. back. I, re- I remember when I was in San Antonio, which is a big military based town. I was in business a couple of years ago. And every single Uber driver I had was retired military. Oh, but really? Most of them had served 20 years. So yeah. they were, they were riding full pension yeah, and then embarking on second career, which, you know, Uber was probably just one component of it. Yeah. But they all said that it was a really nice way to live. I mean, especially if you're in Texas, cost of living is very nice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now you've got the security of a pension, you know, PTSD aside, I don't know, you know, what that story is like, how many people were in, in serious situations, but I guess that begs the question for you, Ben, Mm. does it remain a possibility that you could be, especially with the world as it is today? Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. It does. And I mean, I had to think about that when I became a chaplain because the, the threat existed then too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, absolutely. Had to talk it over with Emma and, you know, we have two kids and, you know, I have a family. It's not like when I was in my twenties and young and single and ah, whatever, I'll just go off and have an adventure. I do have responsibilities now. So yes, it is definitely a possibility. Uh, we still do work our military pretty hard and, uh, you know, a, People often, you know, make fun of the military. Oh, yeah, you know, it's it's old, it's small. Well, it's not old and it's not small. And we are very busy. And we're all over the world. We just don't you just don't hear about it in the news very often. But we have ships on the other side of the world. We have aircraft, troops, everything. So yeah, the chances are pretty high. Peacekeeping mostly when 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 you say they're everywhere, that's it's just sort of a mostly, yeah. I mean, we have troops in Latvia right now as part of NATO. Uh, as just part of our commitment to NATO against uh, against foreign aggression, we'll leave it at that. Um, we have peacekeepers in Africa. We have peacekeepers in the Middle East. Uh, we uh, we did have you know the army in Afghanistan for 13 years, and they've been home a few years now. Mm-hmm. But an entire generation of soldiers went through Afghanistan, so we can safely say we have a battle-hardened army mm-hmm. nowadays because of that. So there's always hot spots. There's always things that need to be done. Plus humanitarian missions. You know, they may not last long, but who goes, right? Mm-hmm. We go. So, so yeah, there's, there's lots of opportunity. And I have to say, despite being, you know, twice the age I was the last time I was an above water warfare officer, I still have a bit of a sense of adventure in me. And, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to leave the family, but you know, if, if, yeah. if her majesty calls, then, uh, I'll go off and do something cool. Sure. Do they have a, when they say, Ben, you got to come back. Are you going back into basic training? Does that even <laughs> exist as, as like the commoner thinks of basic training and yeah. you know, <laughs> going yes. Through, you know. yes, it does exist. Yeah. The crawling through the mud and the being yelled at and the crazy inspections. And thankfully, no, I did not have to do that again. I mean, when I first, got sworn in again. Somebody wasn't sure if I needed to go to basic training again. And I didn't think I did, but I had to ask. And I thought, oh, that, that'll be rich. You know, there will be me, you know, the elder statesman sitting amongst this platoon of 18 year olds, all like, ah! and I'll be like, it's okay, guys, we're going to get through this. It's stay calm. I just need you to carry me. Because yeah. I can't run that far. <laughs> We're going to get through this if you carry me through. That's right. I'll carry you mentally, but you carry me physically. And we'll all be good. So thankfully, no, they didn't ask me to do basic training again, because that would have been that would have been a shock <laughs> to the system. Well, you I don't know. I mean, when like every time I've come and visited you over the years, you're always boxing your your you know, this boxing thing and you're hitting yeah. it, you're doing your hit workout. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, thanks. You know, you know, for 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 a gentleman my age, I think I'm 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 in decent shape. But uh, put me up against the 18 year olds, and like for example, we've been going to CrossFit for the last seven months, Emma and I, and uh, we found a nice gym. It's really really nice, really supportive. It is not at all, you know, sort of the old image of CrossFit, you know, where you like work until you die type of exercise. That's some rebranding in the last two years. Yeah. This is a super supportive CrossFit and everybody's at different levels, but everybody's cool with that. So that's great. I mean, it's, it's going well, but uh, you know, there is one 17 year old uh, young lady who's there, uh, who's like super fit and everyone is in awe of her. And when she does pull-ups, you know, she actually ties, you know, a 50 pound weight onto her 
to make it more challenging. And everyone's all like, ooh, and I'm like, yeah, but she weighs like a hundred pounds. Like I've got more than that strapped onto me all the time. <laughs> Right. So like I'm actually lifting way more than she is. So I'm actually the one you should be ooing and aahing about. I can't believe he lifted his body. Wow. <laughs> I think that that's a fair argument. That argument has been made to me in the gym before as a guy who did strap a few pounds underneath me. You know, the bigger guy who's doing 10 and I'm doing 10. He's like, I'm doing more work than you. You know, I'm double your weight kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So there's truth to that. <laughs> I, I was always fascinated by basic training. There was, there was a moment in between my travels, my world travels as a young man, like I'd hitchhiked across Canada, I'd gone to Asia. And then I came back and I was like, I had met people, Canadians, no, not Canadians, uh, Europeans who it's mandatory. Mm. I I guess that maybe it was Denmark, you know, a lot of them are, they have national service. Yeah. National. I mean, I know South Korea has it and, and, uh, you know, anyway, and I had thought, you know, it wouldn't be the worst thing. And in fact, it may be a really good thing to, to just try it and just to understand what it's all about, make a bit of money, you know, go friends for life type thing. But you know, what's your take on that nations that have yeah. a mandatory, what does it teach and why might it be a good idea? If, if you think it's worth arguing that point. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I certainly have thought about it over the years because I joined the military when I was 18. And I feel that it had a lot of positive effects on me. I mean, it certainly got me into good shape, you know, and taught me how to be in good shape because I was just some lazy teenager before then. But, you know, it taught me discipline. It taught me teamwork. It taught me leadership. It taught me a lot of great life skills that, that I've never lost. So I certainly am I'm a proponent of it. But I have talked to my colleagues from a lot of European countries that do have national service, and they just shake their heads and go, nah, it's a joke. Because a lot of people, you only have to serve for one year. Mm-hmm. And one year is not really enough to teach you much useful. It's also not enough to really get buy-in, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're an 18-year-old just coming out of high school, told you have to do your one year in the military, well, you know it's only one year, right? So you just go along, you just, mm-hmm. you know, you go through the motions, you don't really take it seriously. Uh, so in 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 practice it doesn't really accomplish a lot of the things that we think it will accomplish because they don't really take it seriously. If you had to serve, say, for five years, then absolutely, you would commit then, right? Because now you're in it for the long term. But who's going to agree to that? And I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want every able-bodied youth to have to serve five years in the military. Um, That's just brutal. So I think, yes, the idea is good. And I think there is an awful lot that young people could could learn to their benefit from having some military experience, but the actual practicality of it would be, would be unworkable. I think Mm -hmm. it opens, it opens the door to the question of, you know, how do we really learn to understand? Because in some respects, the military is a very polarizing word, right? Mm -hmm. Does it mean, does it mean invading countries that maybe shouldn't be invaded for reasons that, maybe we're not told, or does it mm-hmm. actually mean the protection civilization, um, and stability of our, of our freedoms and, and what we hold to so dear in our own countries? And, and I've, I've always wondered if it was a really good tool to learn those things, to learn, uh, again, you know, understanding your country in a different, from a different lens and understanding the world from a different lens, which I'll use as a terrible segue into asking like, 
where were you based when you were, you know, a young whippersnapper in the military, uh, in the Navy specifically, and what did you take from that, you know, from those experiences where you were? Yeah, I was based on the West Coast, so I did all of my sailing in the Pacific, and we, we went to some pretty cool places. Like my very first big deployment, we went to Japan, uh, we went to Yokosuka, which is just south of Tokyo, and we went to Osaka. Then we went to Vladivostok, Russia. This was back in 1996. It was, it was only like five years after the Soviet Union had collapsed. And so it was fascinating for us to actually get in there and see what had been our enemy and see them up close. And then we went to uh, South Korea and then went to Hawaii, of course, because that's what you do when you're in the Pacific. And, uh, you know, other deployments, I went to Australia, New Zealand, Samoa, uh, you know, in Guam in the South Pacific. So I'd certainly got to see a lot of the Pacific Rim uh, and uh, it, it, it can't help but expand your perspective just to see how different these countries are. And it's one thing to, to see them on TV or to see pictures, but to go and actually walk around, like say in Japan, you know, it, it's like nothing we have here. You know, it's so big and so busy and the, the attitudes are, are so different from ours. You know, like we're so independent here. And in Japan, no, it's all about being part of the team. And the team is like the whole society, right? And, you know, there's, there's strengths and weaknesses to both. Mm-hmm. But just to see it and to live it uh, is, is amazing. Uh, being in Australia even, I mean, I love going to Australia. And it was interesting. We sort of realized Australia is like a, a British version of Canada. Like it's very much like Canada, but it has all the British trappings to it, right? Mm-hmm. But then I realized, okay, what does that mean? Flip it around. That means that Canada is an American Australia, right? <laughs> very similar, but all the American trappings mm-hmm. is what we are. Like, ooh, okay, you know, maybe we're. It was, it was. It was six months after I went to Australia that September 11th happened, and I actually got posted down to the U.S. Central Command in Florida. So I lived in the United States for six months and we didn't live on a base. Like I lived in an apartment. I went and did my grocery shopping and everything, just like a regular American just, would. Just, just doing the Miami beach lifestyle, but working <laughs> for the. Uh... <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, draw whatever conclusions you like, but uh... <laughs> I have a, I have an image in my mind. I'm not sure if it's the accurate one, <laughs> but... but I realized for me, even that just living, living in America for a while made me realize wow, they're really not as different from us as we in Canada sometimes like to think that they are. Like, yeah, sure, there are differences in philosophy, and of course there are differences, but on the day-to-day level, like living in America, I mean, you know, it's, it's seamless between living in America and living in Canada. The, the, just the, how you interact with society is basically seamless. Whereas if you go somewhere like Japan, you are very clearly in a different country and things are different yeah. and you have to figure out, even going to Britain, you know, things are different enough that you know you're in, a, in another country. Whereas Canada and America, I had to sort of realize hmm, there's a reason we get lumped together a lot. Mm. You know, it isn't isn't the joke that it's uh, Canada is just uh, an unarmed America with healthcare? Is something <laughs> like that, something to that? I don't know if I've got the the saying right, it, but it does it does show you. And I've kind of you know, as the world gets smaller and smaller and smaller through digitization and air travel and Zoom, <laughs> Zoom calls and whatever else, a lot of those differences are still there. They're, they're very bred into us, as you mentioned, culturally. And 
I don't know. I think I'm not going to opine on exactly why there seems to be a lot of boiling <laughs> tensions, uh, or as I should say, you know, a singular uh, pinpoint of so as to why. But it, I wonder if that's part of it. Often is like we're 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 just kind of like continually getting squished, and then you see things happen like you know. In this, please, I, I want to hear what you have to say about this. You look at Ukraine and Russia. And I'm always of the mind to listen to both sides of any story, as much as it, as much as one side may terrify me, mm. or both sides. And you, you start to hear that, and is not to justify any single action that you know that Russia's taken, but it seems to be a bit of a Cuban missile uh, crisis re- on repeat, where the world got a bit smaller, NATO got a bit bigger. And somebody doesn't like that anymore. Mm -hmm. And I guess I don't know what the question in there, Ben. I guess I'm just, you know, someone who's, you know, been in 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 the military and and been in situations where there's two very distinct sides. Mm -hmm. How do you begin to look at a situation like this? Maybe that's the fairest question. And you don't have to say anything you don't want to say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll I'll approach it this way. I think you're what you said is correct. You want to try and hear both sides because there's always something behind even the side that you disagree with. It comes from somewhere, mm-hmm. right? It's not just, oh, they're a bunch of idiots. No, there's something there. You know, it may have been skewed. It may have been twisted. Who knows? But it started somewhere. And what I found, one of my other deployments that I did when I worked with the UN, I was a UN peacekeeper uh, standing between the Israelis and the Arabs. I did that for 13 months. And I lived actually on the Arab side. So I lived six months in Syria and I lived seven months in Lebanon. And again, we didn't live on a base. We actually lived like in an apartment like, in, Damas- in Damascus in Syria yeah. and then in Tyr, which is right at the southern end of, uh, mm-hmm. of Lebanon, right close to the border with Israel. And our job was to try and stop the Israelis and the Arabs from shooting at each other. And it was really interesting because here in North America, we generally get the Israeli point of view. Uh, Our media tends to be pro-Israeli or at least sympathetic to the Israelis. That's fine. I, however, lived on the Arab side. And so I had to interact with the Arabs and I had to... I had to, you know, live in Syria and meet people and talk to people. And obviously, I'm not Syrian. Although I will tell you, you know, just based on my my, my swarthy looks, if, if if I get a deep tan going, actually, I can probably can pass for a Syrian. But it was particularly funny when I was with my six foot four Danish blonde friend, you know, and they all thought I was his local guide. Anyway, but but I had I lived on the Arab side, and you know, people are willing to talk. And a lot of them are like, yeah, we don't care about Israel. We don't care if it exists. We just want to live. We just want to raise our kids and do what we do. And I came away from that with a very, very different perspective on what the Arab position is on Israel. And and actually, I got to meet the people. Like, obviously, I didn't meet everybody, but I met a lot of just regular folks in both Syria and Lebanon. And I came away with a very different – it's not that I'm anti-Israeli, not at all. Right, because I did spend time in Israel as well, and I did get to meet Israelis. But I spent more time on the Arab side, which is what I needed to do, because my own society had already given me the Israeli perspective. Now I needed to see the Arab perspective, which, frankly, in North America, we are not very good at portraying fairly. So by the time I left, 
I had I had such a complex view of that whole situation that I couldn't even begin to tell you who's right and who's wrong because everybody has legitimate grievances. Mm. Everybody has legitimate reasons for why they feel what they feel and why they're saying what they're saying. And, you know, I never condone violence. It should never come to that. But I understand where a lot of the frustration comes from, where a lot of the defensiveness comes from, because I've seen it up close. And so for the Israeli, the Israeli Palestinian Arab situation, basically all I can say is I have no strong opinion mm-hmm. because it's been softened. It's been softened and it's become shades of gray. And I can sympathize, I guess, with both sides. That's what I can say there. For Russia and Ukraine, I do not know enough about it mm-hmm. to, to have that same perspective. And you know, our, our media is definitely uh, pro-Ukraine. And, uh, you know, I'm never a big fan of wars of aggression, no matter who does it, you know, didn't like the war in Iraq either. When America went in, when was that? No three, whenever it was, I was opposed to that. It was clearly a war of aggression, but obviously there were reasons why they did it, you know, justified or not, they at least convinced themselves. And it might be the same thing here that, you know, the, the bigger country has convinced itself that this is a good thing to do. I guess it is really important to not just dismiss someone you disagree with as an idiot, right? That's, that is why we are getting into the position we're in right now in all walks of life, where if I have an opinion and then you state the opposite opinion, well, my only choice now is to get offended, right? I get offended and therefore I hate you. And if you think that, then you must think the same as all those other people that I hate, you know? And, and so we just, we just retrench into our tribes and hurl insults at each other and nobody's listening anymore. So, yet uh, if, think- and yet if you stand there, I, I mean, Ben, that's just such, such great points. Really. Like I need to take everyone, just take a minute to like think about what you just said and how, and how truly important that is. Because if, to your point, if you're standing there, if you're even sometimes, now I, I know this hasn't been the case holistically over the last two years, but if you had somebody a different view on just about anything, but you were sitting down with that person, that's a very different experience than if you're just on Facebook comments or commenting on a YouTube video or something, right? And, yeah. and we, you know, we know, we literally, we literally know that the Facebook algorithm, it dr- drives the sensationalist view in either direction. Mm-hmm. But we, ne- but so many of us never seem to be able to, in the moment, not get e- even if we don't, you know, click, you know, FCUK and you know, <laughs> YOU or something. We feel it; the blood starts boiling a little bit. Yep. And yet we know we're we're only being fed the most, the extreme degree of the thing that it is we're being fed. Yep. And this is, I guess it's almost full circle back to my, the, the, the point you and I were discussing about the benefits of active service. It can change your mindset on so many things, including the military itself. And to an extent, travel. I mean, you know, I took mm-hmm. my kids to Beirut mm-hmm. just before you know, all, all, everything shut down. And you know, we, were, we were in a Hezbollah-controlled neighborhood, and they let us in to film. Like, they did actually kick us out after, but that wasn't everybody. That was one guy who got a bit cranky. The rest were. Yeah. Hezbollah is a great example, actually, because yeah. I lived in South Lebanon, which is mostly controlled by Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's true. They are an armed paramilitary organization. They do some nasty terrorist things, but they are also 
the only source of good government in South Lebanon, right? They build hospitals, they build roads, like they they are the mayors, right? So it's far more complicated. And you don't know that until you get there. Like you said, you sit down with someone and actually get to know them a bit. And you can realize that, yeah, you, your, your initial point may still be valid, but that doesn't mean that there isn't another point that is equally valid, right? Yeah, Hezbollah still are terrorists. That's still true. But there's much more than that. And they do other good. They do good things as well. I'm like, oh man, this is complicated now. You know, I can't <laughs> and, put this into a meme. So right, and we can't. It's just so hard to talk about. I have, yeah. I've, I've thrown up my hands so many times, or I've just been unwilling to weigh in on yeah. anything. Whereas, and it's not that I'm afraid to. It's that I don't want the headache. I yeah. don't want the negativity. It's already challenging enough. Yeah. And uh, that's probably not super characteristic of me, but it's, it's also a nice experiment uh, to just take that more. I'm just going to see, <laughs> watch this as it unfolds mindset, but yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately now more and more of us are just less willing to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. And that can be really hard. You know, like, I'm willing to have a conversation with someone if they're willing to listen to me as well. Unfortunately, if they're just interested in just, you know, megaphoning their attitude towards me and that's it, well, I'm not really interested in having that conversation because I've already heard what you have to say loud and clear, you know, and if you're not willing to listen to me, well, peace be with you, my friend. I'm going to just going to move on, I think. Yeah, man. Well, l- let's, let's move on to, I could talk about that all day, by the way, <laughs> but, uh, I want to move on to how your career in the military led to a career in sci-fi military where, uh, sorry, sci-fi, uh, sci-fi military writing at, yeah. of which you have been incredibly successful. And I do not say that lightly, as I understand it, you have six or seven published novels with some of the biggest publishers in the world, which is no easy feat for just ask any any writer <laughs> out there and the way you did it is fascinating but where where was like where was the transition to say i'm gonna i'm gonna write these stories and i'm gonna yeah and and and, and how how you went about it yeah this actually if i'd known this where we were going i could have segued us over there neatly because my first published novel virtues of war actually grew out of my experiences in the middle east and trying to make sense of what i'd seen and and the military's role and all this. And now I've been writing for years. Like I wrote my first story when I was 12 and I wrote through all through high school and university, but I'd always been just kind of just writing for fun, you know, and some of my friends might read my books and everything, but whatever. When I sat down to write Virtues of War, when I got home from Lebanon, I said, okay, this one's for real. No more messing around. This one is for real. I'm going to actually take this one all the way. And the reason why I chose sci-fi is, A, I like sci-fi. I mean, I was four years old when Star Wars came out. So my entire worldview is shaped by Star Wars. So something could be really cool, but it's even cooler if it's in space. So let's make it, let's make it sci-fi. But I did want to explore issues of military service and PTSD and so on. But I did not want to write a political book. So I didn't want to write a book about Afghanistan or about Iraq or about the Middle Eastern conflict that I'd been part of. I didn't want to write that book because there's too much political 
and social baggage that comes with it. So I thought instead, I'll just base it 500 years in the future, and then I can just write the story that I want to write, right? And there's no baggage tied to it. And I wanted to explore, basically, I wanted to explore what happens when you take genuinely good people and you put them on the wrong side of the war, right? So you've got genuinely heroic characters who they don't know it, but they're actually, they're the bad guys. And so they are going through doing their job, you know, like one's a pilot, one's a a Marine, one's a fast attack craft captain. They're just doing their jobs and they're trying to do them well. And they have their own insecurities and their own uh, personal battles. And you don't know it at first. Now, this is a little bit of a spoiler to anyone who wants to read the trilogy, but it takes me three books to actually reveal that. In the first book, you may look at some of the things our characters do and go, hmm, that's a little hardcore. That's a little, a little harsh. Yeah. And they got away with it. How did they get away with it? Well, because unbeknownst to them, they are actually living in a society that allows this stuff. But, but that's, just, that's just really quick, Ben. You, yeah. so you knew it was going to be three books from the time you started penning the first one? Originally, it was going to be four, actually. But when I signed the deal with, with Titan, they told me, no, make it three. Mm. People love trilogies. Mm. If, you, if you get to the end of the third book and you haven't finished, people get mad. So make it three. Okay. So it was four books, then it became three. And so, yeah, so I wanted to explore a lot of these questions about right and wrong. And what do you do when you're in a morally gray situation? But I wanted to frame it in a military context because, of course, that's what I knew, right? And that's where I'd been for 15 years. And I wanted to show how how soldiers react and why do soldiers do what they do sometimes and i wanted to write it in a way that even someone who hates the military if they're willing to read the book they'll go okay i get why they shot that prisoner i hate it i hate them but i get why they did it mm-hmm. i can understand that now so i'm not saying that you know i'm not saying that my books are full of war crimes they're not but i wanted to because soldiers sometimes when they're in combat have to do really tough things and they have to make really tough decisions. And ultimately, you know, if you're a soldier, you have one job and that is, that is not something that civilians like to think about much. So I explored that in the book and a lot of it came out of my experiences of traveling around the world. And a lot of it came from my experiences in uniform. And, and so that's what the impetus was to write the books. And, uh, yeah, the first one uh, was sort of written in a certain style. It's much more uh, action-packed. You know, if you read the reviews on Virtues of War, it's all sort of you know, gut-busting action, nonstop action, and people like that. But then you get to the second book, which is when our heroes come home from the war, and now they're back in civilian society who really have no idea what they went through. And the second book is all about PTSD. And, and how do our how do our heroes deal with trying to reintegrate into uh, society? Did you have a touch point into that? Like, were you were you had to experience it, or you just knew? Comrades? I did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When I came home from the Middle East, because uh, I'd been in uh, okay, I hesitate to call it a war zone, but I was in a place of hostilities where where shots were fired and people died. And I'd been there for 13 months and to come home 
and also living in Lebanon or Syria, which are not as wealthy as Canada, and they don't have all the same facilities we have, and there's a lot more poverty, and they just don't have what we have. To come home to North American life, you know, where there we have, you know, well, we have clean running water, we have power all the time, we have we have we have supermarkets full of of, of supplies, um, and we have people who really have never had to face adversity in their whole lives. And I did find that there was an adjustment period to try to come back and just reintegrate into society. Um, you know, and I'm not going to make too big a deal about it. Um, I certainly didn't experience things like my colleagues in Afghanistan did, not at all. But even so, I had a sense of it, just the idea of trying to reintegrate back in. Um, I don't know if you remember the movie, The Hurt Locker. I do. Um, it's a fantastic movie. Yeah. And the most poignant moment for me was towards the end when our hero he's in Iraq he's in a gunfight he's walking down the street you know with pistol in each hand shooting at the enemy and then it cuts and all of a sudden he's in a supermarket in America pushing his his cart along the cereal aisle and he looks his, his girlfriend told him to get cereal and he looks up and he sees like the 50 different brands of cereal and he can't deal with it He's actually overwhelmed by the 50 brands of cereal because he has been living on the edge in combat for so long that he doesn't know how to just sort of live a normal suburban life anymore. And he's actually overwhelmed by the cereal, right? And that was a really poignant moment. And I thought, yes, that is what it feels like. And so I was exploring that in the second book, Ghosts of War. And, uh, and our, our heroes react in different ways. You know, some react well, some not so well, and we sort of follow their paths. And then the third book in the series kind of brings it all together again. There's still lots of military action, but there's also the results of what happened in the first two books, and our characters are carrying that baggage with them. So, yeah, so, you know, that's well, where it all came from. Yeah, and I, I'm very curious how... You have the experience. That experience informs both the story, the arc of the characters, as well as the message that you're trying to bring forth throughout, you know, through the through the trilogy. But how? What's your process for bringing that to life on the page, and having it all make sense? And and I will let me just. Hopefully, we can remember that because I'm going to asterisk that was saying you and I have co-written a book together. Mm-hmm. You are a professional writer. I'm very much. <laughs> not a professional writer, although I love writing and I, I try very hard. And you would always catch me on things where you're like, that is it's just not a complete thought. Or you would, you would say, well, that's in your head. So you understand it. But the way you framed it, the audience isn't going to understand it that way. Mm-hmm. And I would just like, you know, it'd be like blood, sweat and tears for me to try and write a few pages. And then you'd write your few pages and it would be a breeze. You just, you know, it was like no problem, time management, productivity. <laughs> like how does, how do you do it? How does one do it? Yeah. The, well, the, the, the first way to answer that is um, probably one that's going to make people roll their eyes, but practice, right? Like anything else you have to practice. And I've been writing for 36 years now. So I've had a lot of practice consistently. Like you don't, you all, you have a ritualistic practice. Yeah, absolutely. Like when I'm, when I'm working on a project, then yeah, I have always sort of like the morning is my time. I get up, I get, have breakfast, have my coffee. I sit down and write, you know, 
till about noon, basically when the, when the, when the muse is spent and then I'll do something else for the afternoon. So part of it's just practice, but I guess there's a couple of ways to approach it. I certainly do have a cinematic quality to my writing in that I, I try to, I try to put myself right into it and okay, what am I seeing? And then what am I smelling? What am I hearing? What am I feeling? And the first pass at it will just be trying to try and capture the scene. And a lot of things just sort of come as I go because I immerse myself into it so much that like the dialogue will just kind of just sort of come out, right? Because I just sort of know my characters. I know what they will say. I know how they'll react. I don't really pre-plan it. If I have a point I have to make in that scene, okay, I'll build that. I know that this is the plot point that has to happen. But how I get there, I just try and get right into the characters and just go with it. Mm-hmm. And it was the same writing Getting Naked because you know, a, lot of the, a lot of the scenes, like I was either there or I was I heard about it like a day later, right? Yeah, so I mean, yeah. there, I had a lot of familiarity, certainly for a lot big sections of the book. It was interesting when we were writing. I think the, like the last couple of chapters, because it was the things happening to you in New York, and I wasn't there, and so those were things that I heard about much later on. And so it was it was more difficult for me because whereas the early stuff, you know, in Abbotsford, you know, I knew what the warehouse looked like. You know, I knew all the players involved, all the characters, even if we changed names, I knew who we were talking about and I knew how it was. New York, I had to sort of fall back a little bit more on my fiction writing because I had to make, I had to make stuff up, you know, and I would check with you and like, it was this, am I, am I wandering too far from the truth here? But I had to sort of employ fiction techniques and that I, okay, I know who the, the key characters are, even if I've never, I've never met them. Joel has described them to me, so I know who they are and what they're like. I've been to New York, so I have a vague idea of what New York looks like. So I'm just going to go from it and just put them into the scene and see where they go. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. You know, like there were certainly were more than one occasion when you came back to me and it's like, yeah, it didn't happen that way. (laughs) I did not say that. I'm like, I know, I know, but it it works for the scene. And you know, and, and that was always the balancing act we had. Because how, how we wrote the book was it was part how to part story. That's right. And so the, the story of the startup to of the naked underwear to the sale that spanned continents and failures and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Ben brought this incredible storytelling ability to bring that story to the page. And then, you know, my part was to bring the the how-to that related to the things that were happening. But yeah, I, I mean, it was, it was so fascinating for me to watch you do it because it well, was, it was like education, like masterclass. You know? <laughs> well, I mean, even going back to the very first anecdote in the book, you know, where you've discovered the underwear at the, at the night market, you know, and uh, I mean, you had told me the truth of what had actually happened there. And the anecdote I, I think is pretty loyal to the truth. Um, but I, hadn't been to a nightclub, you know, in Latin America. So I had to sort of guess what it was like. And, and that was, that was a really nice mix of taking what you told me of what had actually happened and me just kind of filling in the details around it to, to make it into a scene. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference between, I guess, good storytelling and real life is that real life rarely has a nift, a nice conclusion, right? Real life rarely has a punchline. It just sort of keeps going. But if you're going to tell a story, you have to encapsulate a bit a bit of real life and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to tell it from this moment to this moment. 
because all the stuff before and all the stuff after aren't relevant to the point we're trying to make. Right. right? right. This is the piece of real life that we actually want to capture and, and, and sort of shape and round out and make it into a complete little vignette. And, and, and that I think discipline, right? Like that's a disciplined approach to writing, which I would often find, often find myself again, falling out of where it's like, these are the walls, be as creative as you want inside these walls. And then, you know, is that fair? Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. It is. Yeah. I mean, we debated for years because we worked on this book for years. Okay. Where is the book going to end? Because in real life, the story kept going. So are we going to go till this point, like till you went to New York or are we going to take it to this point? And we had to keep trying to find an end point because if you don't know what the end point is, your story doesn't really know where it's going, right? You you have to know, okay, we're, we're taking it to here. Mm-hmm. And of course, your life has continued on since then, but we had to cap the story and say the story ends here yeah. um, because we're trying to make a point and we're trying right. to you know, give lessons and give a message. And so that, uh, you said it really well, building the wall. These are the walls. Inside here, we can do all kinds of things, but we're not going to go outside because that's beyond the scope of what we're trying to say. So the most important part of the writing process then, or not the most important, but a very important part is establishing what those walls are yep. At, yep. before you start, let the muse free and write, you know, to your heart's content. Yeah, definitely. Like wh- wh- I've given, I've given seminars on story structure and what I ever, what I tell people, this is true for fiction, but it's also true for creative nonfiction, like what getting naked is, is the first thing you need to figure out is the end. Where is your story ending? What's the climax of your story? Where is it all coming to? And you have to answer that because everything else in the story is pointing towards the climax. And if you have a scene or a subplot or a character which in no way supports the climax, then either get rid of them or rewrite them so that they do tie in. Everything has to tie in. And we've all read stories and seen movies where things just kind of go off the rails. And you're like, why on earth did we go there? Like, why? Just because the, the writer thought it was cool? Well, okay, fine. But um, if you want a really good story, you, everything is pointed towards the, uh, the climax. And people might not know why until they get there. They'll go, oh, that's the best kind. Absolutely. Still- is that true in something? Is that, is that true in something like Game of Thrones, where you have a massive amount of content and and many many characters is there not an evolution in that or or you or you all of a sudden a new character spawns out of the muse and you have to write you have to write it into this endpoint versus it was there to begin with or are these are these geniuses you know like like yourself it, it, really mapping the whole thing out to begin with it's almost all there very little is is coming out of, or is that just personal creative process preference? Each one of us is different for sure. Yeah. You know, like Stephen King has said, he never writes outlines. He just sits down, he's got an idea and he goes, mm-hmm. right? And that's, I mean, who's, who's going to argue with Stephen King? He's a genius. Other people plot things out very carefully. And of course, you know, as each individual writer will find their own way. But as I'm sort of recommending to people, if you want to get into writing, here are some basic skills that you should develop and having at least an idea of where your book is going is a good one. If you're a particularly talented writer, you can get away without doing that. Like I, 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 a book I edited just recently for one of my authors 
was exactly that. It was the third book in her series and I edited it through and I got to the end and I had to say to her, okay, first of all, you know, I love you, but this book is going nowhere and it goes nowhere and there is no plot, but you are such a strong writer and your scenes are so vivid that you, you pretty much carry it. And so, you know, I, I said to her, make, you make all these changes structurally and you will have an amazing book. And she did full credit to her. She went away, rewrote the book and, and, and she, she kept all of the incredible detail and vivacity and, and characterization, but she actually hung it on a structured plot. And the book is brilliant now. Yeah, George R. R. Martin is, is, is a genius. He is not the example that I would point new authors to, though, <laughs> because you're right. He does that you know, in the new book. The whole first section is on some new character we've never heard of in a new land we've never been to before. And at the end of that section, the new character dies. You're like, what? <laughs> you know? so, I just invested all this time into that character. <laughs> yeah, but he is such a strong writer. Like he, He's just so good at building a scene and making you love or hate or both that character that you go with it. But as far as structure goes... Game of Thrones is not the best example. If you're looking for another example, like another giant fantasy series, uh, Stephen Erickson, who is a Canadian author, he wrote the Malazan Book of the Fallen, which is in fantasy circles about as big as Game of Thrones. They just haven't made a TV show about it yet. That's why you may not know it. But Stephen Erickson, the Malazan Book of the Fallen, it's a 10-book series. And each book is about 250,000 words. It's enormous. Mm. But Erickson had a plan the entire way and he will bring back characters in book eight that you haven't seen since book two but if you're paying attention you you can see how it ties in and it, it all ties in so if you to want geek- a master class in mega structure right? steven erickson and to geek out on that a little bit just 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 for a, a minute here indulge me yeah. is, is there a process is he is he writing that character on a, on a cue card or in some sort of note and saying, here he or she is, pin in it. I've written the chapter, here it is. But then, you know, like two books later, we're bringing them back. Like it's not like it's, it's, it's organized as almost like profiles, you know, mm-hmm. or is it, or is it just, okay, no, in my mind, I'm bringing it back you know, as it, as it comes. Very often uh, what authors will do, I mean, yeah, like sticky notes or whatever the digital equivalent it now is, is very common and building threads. And, and if you understand the world that you're creating well enough, you, you, you know where all your characters fit. And so you know that if a story has been over here, but now it's gone to somewhere else, if it's going to come back over here, then these characters are relevant again. And mm-hmm. so if you know that your story is going to come back there, then you set it up the first time through. Okay, these characters, make them important. This is what I need them for because you know, six books from now, it's coming back and I need them to be able to do this. So I got to set that up early. Um, it's, it's having a deep understanding of your characters. And I guess this is something that I was talking about earlier with my own writing. I knew my characters very well. I knew how they would react. Even before I'd written the scene, I knew them. And so I would, I would present them with a scenario and just sort of set them loose mm-hmm. and, and they would always act consistently. And then, so the scenes wrote themselves very naturally because I knew my characters. And in my case, 
because I know how the military works. That setting in which my characters act, I know how it works. And I know how, if let's say they have to talk to the admiral, well, I got a pretty good sense of what the admiral is going to say because I've dealt with enough admirals or chief petty officers. I know what they're going to be like because I know enough of them that I can sort of build this montage in my head very quickly because I'm so familiar with that environment. So that helps. And what I'm just, just what's coming through to me is that writing's a fucking lot of work. And I know, <laughs> and I obviously, I know this because we wrote a book and I, you know, I blog a little bit here and there and I'm, and I'm you know, working on something else, but what you are describing versus what I do are very different things. You are describing a lifelong commitment that involves thousands and thousands and thousands of hours to just to be able to achieve this, this understanding to, that delivers something that a publisher wants. And you wear both hats because in the process, and I know this about you because in the, and I, one of the things that made me deeply respect you when I first met you. So I'll share the story. It, when I first met Ben, we were working at a newspaper. I was a junior sales manager. Ben was my boss. <laughs> I, I shouldn't have put the word manager in there. I was a junior sales. So, so I wasn't going to correct you. But yeah. yeah. I, was, I was not a manager of anything. And, uh, and anyway, Ben had written that the first book, Virtues of War, that you described, and you chose to self-publish it. Mm-hmm. But you you did the the most entrepreneurial thing you could possibly do is you actually created a publishing company to self-publish it that actually became something. Like a lot of people put the self-publishing company or put the publishing company on their book that they publish on Amazon, but they're not actually publishing other people's books. You very shortly thereafter did that. And then Virtues of War got picked up by a major, but but there was the, the legacy of this publishing company that remained. So you wore both hats. Mm. What, what did you learn putting on the other hat, the publisher hat? Did it change your writing? And and I guess, well, I know we'll just leave it there, you know, yeah. when you, when you did that. Yeah, I'm happy to say no, it didn't change my writing. Uh, my writer hat and my publisher hat were always separate hats. And uh, the writing just kept on going. And to your point a minute ago about how much effort people put into writing, for sure, there's no question. I mean, writing for me, it's a compulsion. I have to do it. I love doing it. I don't feel complete unless I'm doing it. And that's just kind of part of who I am, which is why I write so much and why I've put in so much time. As a publisher, uh, it's a totally different world because now it's the business side of writing, and uh, it uh, it is a it's a very odd industry. Um, but I had to learn all that. I had to learn all about distribution. I had to learn all about uh, building a niche for yourself as a publisher, and just just how money flows and just how expensive it is. Holy crap! To put out books as a traditional publisher, because uh, yeah, Promontory, the publishing company, it did start as self-publishing for me. But then when I started publishing other people, it became very quickly a traditional publishing company. We tried kind of a hybrid method for a couple of years and it just didn't fly. So we went to traditional publishing. And well, at the end of it, I guess I can say, I really appreciate being an author a lot more. Um, I appreciate all the work that publishing companies do because it is hard work. And like anything in the arts, 
they will, they will, if they like a book, they will put everything into that book, you know, gorgeous cover, amazing editing, nice, you know, marketing campaign, but ultimately all they can do then is hope, hope that the public buy the book and that that book just catches and, and, and just goes. And there are so many books that are written that are really, really good that just don't either don't even get a shot, or if they do, they just don't get, they don't catch fire in the first 30 days. And the publisher just has to move on to the next one. And that's something I really didn't like about the industry mm-hmm. is that the authors are the most important part of this industry because we're the ones who create the content. But the industry is structured that the authors are basically the people with the least amount of rights or respect, you know, um, because the publishing industry basically thinks, ah, well, you know, you're an author, but there's a hundred more just like you, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll just go on. Whereas we're the publishing house. And so when I ran Promontory, I tried really, really hard to A, look for first-time authors, promising first-time authors that we could publish because I thought that's what every author needs is that break. They just need that break to get a published book. Because once you're published, now you're in the major leagues. Now, even if even if Promontory doesn't do their second book, they can go to another publisher because they are a published author now. So I look for I look for first-time authors, but also I always want to treat the authors with respect, you know, and it was a publishing house run by an author who always thought like an author. And I remember talking to another publisher once about what am I going to do with books that aren't selling? And he's like, well, just dump them. I'm like, well, no, I'm not going to dump them. I mean, I, I got to take care of my author. And he, he looked at me strangely for a second. They went, oh, I forgot you're an author. Right. <laughs> okay. You got to get over that if you want to be a publisher. You're going to be successful in this business. You got to have yeah. a heart. You know, and I'm not trying to... Um, you know, trash the industry. I'm glad it exists. And I mean, I'm a traditionally published author. I, I love my agent. I, I appreciate my publishers. You know, they've all done great work and I appreciate the opportunities that they've given me. But it is a very old fashioned industry and it has some really weird ways of doing things, which is why self publishing, which has come along in the last 15 years, is actually really exciting because it is, it's definitely lowering the barriers to entry. And it, it still has the problem of there's no quality control, but I'm finding whereas 10, 15 years ago, that was a huge problem is the market was just being flooded with garbage. That is sort of self-policing now in that most authors have figured out if I want to succeed as a self-published author, the first thing I have to do is write a good book and get it well edited and get a good cover, right? I have to do all the things that a traditionally published book would do if I want to have any chance of succeeding. And so the industry is maturing and self-publishing is maturing to the point where people do realize, yeah, I can't just write any old dross, turn it into an e- ebook and throw it up online and call myself a published author. Right? If I actually want to do this for real, I have to put in the effort. Yeah. And that effort doesn't have to be done by a traditional publisher anymore. The author can do it themselves, but they still have to put in the same amount of effort and probably the same amount of money to get it out there and to hope to succeed. So- Ultimately, I mean, I, I stopped being a traditional publisher a, a while ago because I'd actually spun out another company out of Promontory called Cascadia, which of course you know all about, mm-hmm. Cascadia Author Services, because I realized traditional publishing, as a traditional publisher, Promontory was so limited because we could only take so many books because it's expensive. And we had to say no to a lot of books because 
they didn't fit our our brand, which the industry insisted that we develop. We had to have a brand. We're this kind of publisher, or we just didn't have room for them. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I can help those authors in another way. And so I created Cascadia, which is just there as an author services company to help authors get ready for publication, whether it's self-published or traditional. And that I find is much more satisfying because now I'm not constrained by all these all these walls and fences that the industry has put up. It's almost, uh, it's not quite the wild west anymore, but it's definitely the, uh, the big wide open farmland of the West. You know, like there's lots of space, there's lots of space to do what you want to do. And because self-publishing is sort of growing up now, I think it's a really exciting avenue for authors to explore. And I'm really pleased to have been a part of that and to be able to help authors, you know, learn from my mistakes and, uh, and do well. It's fascinating. You read, you read, you mentioned, you know, the, 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 the big, the big hand of the, the publishing industry. And you hear these stories about rewrites after rewrites, or, you know, the, the agent is like that, you know, that one was good. They loved it, but they want another one just like it. You just spent like two years, but then they say, you know, do it, but do it this way and then we'll publish it. And Versus in the self-publishing world, you know, you have that hand if you go through something like Cascadia, which, you know, eff- effectively that's what that we did. We had the editors, we had, you know, the, the third party eyes on the book. And it's not the it's not to say, hey, rewrite this whole damn thing. It's to say, here's where your holes are, your gaps are, move these things around. And then, yeah, sure, you can decide if you still want to put it out. But you get that that really important education of this this is good writing. How do we make it great? How do we make it exceptional? And it, and it's, it's it's like it never it's never over in that way. I, I was just reading this article in GQ about Francis Ford Coppola. Okay, so one of the greatest directors of all time, arguably, you know, Godfather, uh, Apocalypse Now, and whatever else in there. What's so funny is the movie industry wouldn't wouldn't make Apocalypse Now. Francis Ford Coppola owns a hundred percent of it, wow. and that was after his two his his he had five Academy Awards, and they wouldn't make it mm. because it was just too much. Like it was just you know that when when it came down to the business of whether or not this made sense to them, it didn't. And since then, he's been trying to make this Meglo. I can't remember the name of it. He's been trying to make this film for forty years. Wow. And he's estimated that it's about $120 million. And he's a guy who's been kind of pushed out of Hollywood, been uh, bankrupt before, and now he's got a very successful wine business and I'm sure much else, but he's just going to self-fund it. You're talking about the, the great, one of the greatest directors of all time, essentially self-publishing mm. his next movie. Yes, it's $120 million, but it's still, he's going it his own way because he has his own vision for what this would be, and I, I guess the question baked into that, Ben, is like the importance of, okay, this is what a publisher thinks is going to sell versus what this is what you want to write. This is what you want to put into the world. Like, how do you, how do you coach an author when it comes to you or she comes to you and ask that? Yeah. Um, well, as an, the author, the first thing I'll tell them is write what you want to write because there is somebody out there who's going to dig what you're writing. And if you put your passion into it, that's going to shine through on the page. Mm-hmm. You know, like when I wrote Virtues of War, I thought, okay, I'm going to write military sci-fi and I'm going to write it at a certain level 
where I'm just going to assume a degree of knowledge in my reader about military stuff. I'm not going to explain every detail. Just, you know what? Keep up. Just go with me here. And that was a conscious decision because I didn't want to waste my time either dumbing down the military terms or writing it incorrectly. You know, I wanted to write it realistically. This is actually how the military works. And I'm just going to write true to that. And I thought, you know, not everyone's going to like this because not everyone's going to understand it, but this is what I want to write. And so I did. And sure enough, there is an audience out there. So never as an author, never try and chase the trends, right? Oh, everyone's writing. I mean, a few years ago, it was zombies. Everything was zombies. Well, I guess I better write a zombie book then. I hate zombies, but no, don't. If you hate zombies, then don't write a zombie book. Write what you want to write. Now, is a publisher going to pick up your book. Well, yeah, part of the calculus of being a publisher is not only is this a good book, okay, yes, is there a market for this book? Am I going to make money selling this book? And that is the hard choice that publishers have to make. And if you're an author and you've been rejected, if you've had feedback that your writing is good, then unfortunately, the reason you got rejected is probably because either they had a book just like yours that already signed, or they just didn't think they'd make enough money on it. It's a hard choice to make. Publishers aren't jerks. But that is, unfortunately, they're in the business to make money. So self-publishing is great because if you believe in your book and you, if you have the means to put a little bit of money behind it and, and self-publish it, no one believes in your book more than you do. And you can push it through and, and, and you, can, you can find experts to help you. Like if, you. if you don't know how to do marketing, you can get someone to help you. If you don't know how to make a cover design. You can, you can hire somebody to do that. But you are the one who has the passion behind it. And no publisher will have that. And so it is really important. Write what you want to write. And I, I always recommend to people try traditional publishing because it's great. It's great if you can do it. But if, if you find that you can't, then self-publishing can be a great option. It's not like self-publishing used to be, oh, you're not good enough to be traditionally published, so you're here in the ghetto. That's not, that's not true at all all anymore. Lots of very talented authors choose to self-publish because they want to be in control of their destiny. They want to keep the rights to their book. Maybe they have big plans you know, for tie-in products with their book, and they want, to, they want to keep control of all that, particularly with nonfiction books. So write what you want to write. And hopefully there's a traditional publisher who totally is into what you're writing. But if there isn't, the good news is that's not the end of the road like it used to be 20 years ago. That was it. You were done. Mm-hmm. Now you have another path and, uh, and you can go down it. And it's really cool. We're on that road, is it, is it pretty standard? Like we never even attempted this. We just did it our way through what you already knew how to do. But is it as simple as sending out your manuscript to just Google searching publishers and sending it to the, the manuscript, uh, your manuscript to them as part one of the question? And part two is if you decide to self-publish is there's much like you? What's the path, the million mile journey from the self-published to all of a sudden I'm traditionally published for the same book? Mm. You know, is that a, is that realistic or is that is that very much an outlier? It's I'm not the only person who's ever self-published initially and then picked up for a traditional deal. It certainly does happen. I know um, one person else, another yeah. person who has it does happen, and well. The first, that's the first part of your question about how do you do it. Um, you, you don't necessarily Google publishers. You Google agents, Google literary agents, and there are lists of literary agents. 
and look for one who handles the kind of book that you are writing. You know, if you write mysteries, look for an agent who specializes in mysteries. If you're writing, you know, a, a medical textbook, okay, look for an agent who deals with that. Um, so that's what you start with the agents and look for them. And they then will take on the heavy lifting of getting you into the publisher. That's their job. But for if you want, if you want to take the sort of the Cinderella road of self-publishing and then getting picked up, you know, by the by a publishing major, what you do is you you do all the right things in self-publishing. You get the book edited so it's a good solid read. You get a good cover. You know, you 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 do the marketing to get the awareness out there. Uh, if if you are able and it's appropriate. Um, you, you know, you go to conventions, you go to book fairs, you, you sell the book, you get the word out. I mean, marketing is a huge topic all on its own. Um, but fundamentally, you write a good book and you package it up nicely together. And then if you sell a decent number of books, and I would, I would say a good, a good number to look at is, say, 2,000. If you can sell 2,000 copies of your self-published book, that is enough to get somebody's attention. It's not a large number. Like New York publishers are hoping they're going to sell many more than 2,000 copies of a book. But if you as a self-published author can, can, can sell and not give away, not give away, but sell 2,000 copies, then you've proven to a publisher that there is an audience for your book. Mm-hmm. And they may not republish your first book. Very often, if a book is already published, they're like, okay, what's well, it? It's done. Mm-hmm. But they might be interested in your sequel, mm-hmm. right? Now, I was I was a, a a strange case in that they actually republished the first book, Virtues of War, and part of that was a little bit of trickery. And I hope my editor isn't listening. But most of my sales had been in Canada, and so my agent was able to make the argument that this book had not been released in the United States. Now it had been, but. Most of the sales were in Canada, and we could legitimately say most of the sales are in Canada. So we had not saturated the U.S. market at all, and so we were able to say, you know, publisher, you can have all the U.S. sales and all the U.K. sales and everything because this book hasn't really reached those markets yet. And so that's a little bit of, a little bit of cleverness of my agent to to uh, spin that spin good. that tale. That's um, good, but it worked. I'll, um, I'll I'll interject there by saying that. I'm a big fan of agents. I'm a big fan. I, you know, I come from the apparel space. There's, it's an agent. It's still, if you, unless you're a true e-commerce play, call that the self-publishing of your, you know, of the book world. Agents still have the relationships with, you know, in the stores. In your case, with the publishers. But what I like most about it is I like that the agent, to some degree, validates the work, the product. And also becomes the champion of it in that sense. Whereas, of course, you made that point. Nobody's going to believe in your work better than you. So when you go to a publisher and you're like, I, I am the greatest. This book is the greatest because I believe it's the greatest. And that's all really wonderful and positive and you know, right to have that attitude. But when an agent says that, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, wait, somebody else thinks that. Yep. And it also gives you that one step of, well, if that agent doesn't think that, okay, now I don't have the rejection of the publisher yet. I have, I have some beta testing that says, okay, first pass, maybe it wasn't a win. What, what do I need to take away from that? Could yep. be the agent, could be like you said, they already have a book like that, an author like that. So maybe you need to go somewhere else, but it also could just be the work not being where it needs to be. 
Yeah, and that that's a great point. And very often agents won't tell you why they're rejecting your book. They're just they're busy. So they'll just send you a standard rejection letter. Like when I first started submitting uh, short stories, it was still the mail, physically mailing the book out and or the, the story out, you know, and you had to in- include a self-addressed stamped envelope on the inside so they could mail you back the rejection letter. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that was fine. But then they actually developed email and agents had emails. And so I started submitting, you know, to emails. I'm pretty sure that some of those agents had the rejection letter as their auto reply. <laughs> like it came back so fast. <laughs> like I had no that with the film, this. man. When I was yeah. when I was first the travel film that we made when I was first going out for funding it, I was trying to before I shot it. Yeah. I shot a little bit of man, it was just rejection letter city. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so so you may not get any feedback from an agent. If you ever do get feedback from an agent, that's gold. Take it, take it seriously and listen to what they have to say. But you probably won't because just because they're busy. So if you're not sure, then this is why I tell every author, please make the investment to get a professional editor because you've only got one chance to make a good first impression. And an agent may read your book and go, yeah, I see potential here, but wow, does it ever need a lot of editing? Too much work. I'm not going to deal with it. So if you've had a professional editor review your book, then at least you can rest assured that a professional, you know, who is not a member of your family, has told you, yes, this book is at a publishable level, mm-hmm. or it will be when you do these things, right? That's one of the big things we do at Cascadia. We even have something just called a manuscript evaluation. Like it's really, it's not expensive at all. It's just, we're going to, a professional editor will read your book and give you like a 10 page report on its strengths and weaknesses and where it's at and how does it fit in your target market. And here's some things that you could do, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not a big financial investment for the author, but at least they have that feedback and they can know, okay, this is as good as I think it is, you know, and uh, this is good to send out to agents. If you don't do that, then you might be shooting yourself in the foot because you honestly can't edit your own writing well enough. You know, your spouse can't either. So I, even- we say that in getting naked, we say, you know, we talk about love money as one of the early forms of investment uh, for a startup being, you know, necessary, but yeah. it is not indicative of the quality of what you have created. That's right. And you have to, you need the real world to tell you, yeah, we like it, absolutely. we want you to change it, you know, all that stuff. So it's, it's just the same thing in a different, you know, in a different uh, medium, but the process is, man, it just, it, you know, you just got to follow it and, and keep at yeah. it and, and keep kicking the can. And I, I, I know that we've been chatting for a while. There's still a few more things I want to ask you. I want to ask you if uh, money's no object has your wife changed her mind about space given what, uh, what, where we're at in the world today? And <laughs> no, no, she still won't let me go into space. I'm really mad about that. But, uh, yeah, no, not Bezos is or Musk's little, you know, nah. I mean, what's, what's his face when he came back? Well, those, uh, uh, the Captain Kirk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. William Shatner. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, basically my, I'm playing the long game now. My youngest son wants to be a, a fighter pilot, yeah. and and fighter pilots are usually the ones you know who get into the into the space program. So maybe he'll he'll go and become an astronaut, and then 
then he can take me up to space, you know? So it's a long game and there's no pressure on the boy or anything, but, uh, you know, he better deliver. So, uh, so we'll see, but no, Emma still won't let me go into space. What do you think about it all though? What do you think about where the, the acceleration in the last two years, if it, you know, if it's really, really space travel, or if it's just high earth travel, uh, yeah. And, yeah. And, I mean, it is really just a hop still like they, they go up, they get into space and they come back down again as Russell Mon- Randall Monroe from what if the book, what if uh, described space, isn't that high. It's not hard to get up to space. The problem is staying there because yeah. you have to go really, really fast. And, th- and so space travel is still hard. You know, and we've all lived with space travel, you know, many of us for our entire lives to reality it exists. We forget just how hard it is. So I'm pretty excited that private enterprise is getting into the business because ultimately that is what we're going to have to do, right? If we, if we want to, you know, to conquer and I, okay, people in the podcast can't see about air quotes there, conquer space, governments aren't going to do it. Governments can, can assemble the money and the expertise to do it, but they do it so inefficiently that it can never be sustainable. It is ultimately businesses that are going to have to find a way to make space travel sustainable and, and, and economic because otherwise we're just never going to do it. Because you, do you think the motivation is the correct one? Like, is this just humans constant curiosity to forever you know, go where no man's ever gone before, so to speak, or is it, so. or is it, you know, Musk's, we have to colonize Mars to save the species. Like, which, where do yeah. you stand on that spectrum? I mean, that is, that is taking the, that is taking the really long view, you know, yeah. Musk's statement about, uh, you know, we only have one planet and if a meteorite hits it, then, you know, well, we're done. So yes, it's true. If we can colonize the moon and colonize Mars, then that is a way to preserve the species. That is so far beyond our ability to do right now that you know, I, I appreciate his long view. <laughs> and, and you do sometimes need the visionaries to say, this is what we need. Here's the problem. Here's how we have to solve it. I have no idea how we're going to do that yet, but let's start, let's start taking the steps that way. His, you know, his and, ambition is his lifetime though, is it not? It is, yeah. And I think getting people to Mars is something that we are capable technically of doing right now. It's just so unbelievably expensive and so unbelievably difficult that it's going to take a, a real concerted effort to do. You know what I mean? But I mean, it, we could do it. I mean, if you look at the, the moon shots in the late 60s, early 70s, like the amount of technological challenges that NASA overcame to make that happen with what they had at the time, you know, basically slide rules, you know, and, and, and hand pumps, you know, and they did it. So it is possible to do. And if someone like Musk has the, has the vision and the leadership ability to make it happen, yeah, yeah, for sure, it could happen. Is the collective will there, though? I guess that's it. You know, do we as a species want to spend enough of our resources on that to actually make it happen? Elon Musk has, has enough money and influence that he can probably do it, especially if, you know, Bezos wants to do it too. You know, like get enough billionaires together, and I suppose we have the resources to do it. But does the species want to do it? Uh, I guess that's really the question. Yeah, can we get to Mars? Yes, I'm. I'm sure it will happen in our lifetime. 
Um, but are we going to stay and are we going to you know, invest in Mars? Are we going to build something there? That is now going to require the buy-in of the species. So it's, uh, yeah, it seems like the, the breadcrumbs are certainly being dropped as to you, you get both sides of it. Like, the, you know, you get people who say that is just a colossal waste of our energy yeah. um, and our money and even billionaires money, even if it's your own money. Yeah. You know, especially as the divide widens and widens yeah. and widens. And then you got, you know, you got, but you don't want to, you, you don't want to stop fishing. You don't want to, to bring down that. And, and as a sci-fi author yourself, you know, what excites you? What about it? Does it, does it, does it make you feel like you have stories to tell? Does it, you know, does do you, do you feel like there's a self-fulfilling prophecy mm. in, in storytelling over the last 50 years and the, yeah. the next yeah, hundred? Yeah. That's a really good point. We've been talking about going into space like it's so commonplace now. And there are so many books about it that I think an awful lot of us are very comfortable with the idea. So it's not that outrageous, right? Like many of us can, can just sort of go, hmm, okay. Yeah, you want to go to Mars? All right, sure. You know, until I get the bill for it, right? Yeah. And then right. I get the bill and we go, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. That's an awful lot of Starbucks. Some of those taxpayer dollars support yeah. a private enterprise. <laughs> yeah. But at least you're right. We are collectively being um, normalized to the idea, you know. And there are so many stories about colonizing Mars, and not just you know John Carter, but like the actual like scientifically based ones, you know, like the Martian. That I think that people are kind of okay with the idea. It's not that it's not an absurd idea. It's just okay if you if you tell me that we can do it, and it's not going to cost me anything. Absolutely. Off you go. I'll cheer you on. But coming back to your point, I think you're very right. We don't want to squelch vision, right? A sense of vision, a sense of always reaching. I think that's one of the things that makes us great. And I think we should keep doing that for sure. Did you watch uh, Don't Look Up? Yes. <laughs> I, yes. I, 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 the, the arrogance of of the the well the entirety of the human race on both sides of that equation but in the end that they had it all figured out to solve for the meteorite or whatever the asteroids that were coming and then solve for the exit plan and it was spoiler alert yeah <laughs> neither worked out at all you know and that's where i always you know want a touch of humility and and you know and also just on a personal level remember that like my journey is Yes, we can we can want to journey out with vision, but also to journey in to self. And yep. I, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this, but we probably don't have time to talk about it. But I would be curious how, as a leader and a man of of God and faith, how you reconcile religion and 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 the universe as we understand it mm. in the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And this, but I really do think that's another, <laughs> that's maybe, unless will, you want to crack at it. If you want I can to answer it, I'll answer it very shortly. Yeah, okay. uh, very quickly. So, um, yeah, these days there definitely is this perceived uh, schism between religion and science, right? And a lot of people on both sides just perpetuate that schism. I don't have a problem with it at all. I don't think there's a schism at all because religion and science answer different questions. They look at the world in different ways. They're both ways of looking at the world that aren't really compatible with each other, but that's okay. It doesn't mean one is wrong. It just means that we're asking different questions. And so we're getting different answers. There are 
I mean, science is, is amazing. It's an amazing tool that we have. It is, has changed our lives so much. I'm a big fan, you know, but that doesn't mean that I can't have faith. There are other things in the world, other aspects of reality that science can't touch. It, just because it can't, it cannot form the question because it's not designed to ask those questions. Mm-hmm. Whereas religion and faith are perfectly designed to ask those questions. And just because you can't define something scientifically doesn't mean it's not real and doesn't mean it's not important. And I'll just I'll offer one example here. This came up once at a dinner party. I was sitting there with an engineer who basically was saying that everything in the humanities is just fluffy garbage and uh you know because you know he's an engineer and everything's black and white Mm -hmm. and i said okay here's a question should we as a society care for the least uh or for, for the for the most vulnerable in our society you know should that be a priority for us to care for the most vulnerable that is not a question that science can answer science can give us lots of data to support a position one way or the other, but it comes down to, should we, should we care for the most vulnerable? Mm. That is a question of morality and mm. ethics. And it's not a question that science can answer, but it's an extremely important question. It's a very relevant question. It's not some airy fairy philosophical mm. question. It's a very real question, but it's just outside the realm of science to answer. It's not a scientific question. So there's just an example of something that is very real, very much a part of our life, which is just something that you don't need science for. You can, again, you can use science to get data and to build an argument, but ultimately you still have to make your argument. And that's the kind of thing that faith and religion can, can, can grapple with. All those other questions about existence and about who we are and why do we do what we do and what should we do, those are where faith and religion come in. So the two are not in conflict at all. They're just looking at the world in different ways. And if we can do both, then we will be richer, more full people. It's so close to where we started our, our conversation, you know, an hour and a half ago with regards to the spectrum of division and saying, well, but we can't live in saying that these are these are questions and these are ways that we ask them and ways that we contemplate them and ways that we maybe understand them. But as soon as we draw a line in the sand, the unity is is ripped out of it. And 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 I think that the other side of what you said was the spirit, the Holy Spirit, is not really a question of science. It's it's a question of it's a it's a matter of faith and it's a matter of something that is not tangible in the sense that science looks for tangible things to assess today. And yet we take it on faith, which is the beauty of faith to begin with, that, mm-hmm. that the, there is this presence of, of the Holy Spirit of, of God in us that does all kinds of things that science cannot explain today. Yeah. And so many of those things are rejected because they cannot be explained inside uh inside science or by science. And that to me is, is the travesty of where science has gone Mm -hmm. is it's pushed for all that it has given us. It has pushed us away from an element of our human, our human experience that is almost magical and that we don't want to lose. Yeah. And this conflict hasn't always existed. Mm. Many of the great scientists of the early scientific era, like Isaac Newton were religious and they were quite happy with it 
Mm-hmm. Like there was no conflict to them. They were just exploring God's creation with this new tool that they had called science. But now that science is so successful, it has sort of become a victim of its own success. Mm-hmm. As as big religion has done in its time too. Like I'm this is true. Yeah. you know, I mean, any organization is it can be guilty of that if they're extremely successful and extremely powerful and extremely influential. It's not very far to become extremely arrogant as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, and and big religion is kind of on the back foot right now and they don't really like being there. And so both sides, yeah, are just are just are just drawing the battle lines. And I think it's really sad. I think it's really sad. Although I have faith, oh, I have faith, but I I have hope because oh, and oh yeah, we got another hour because this is actually was my was my master's thesis. But um, talking about how we are moving out of a modernist way of thinking, which is very rational, very based on science. And here's, when did that? When did that? Yeah, uh, it's hard to say. Different yeah. places, different times. But in North America, sort of in the nineties is when we started to Ooh, switch. That that recent. Yeah, yeah. The 80s was still very modernistic in its way of thinking. And that generation still, you know, sort of carried that through. But your generation in particular, Joel, are very much about let's look at new ideas. Let's reject what the what the tradition and institutions are telling us. Let's look at our own experience. My experience is just as important and valuable and valid as what tradition is telling me. Modernists hate that. Mm. Postmodernists are all about that. And postmodernism can be kind of chaotic, but that may be what we need right now. It's a little bit of a shakeup. You know, I don't want to replace big science with big religion. Trust me, I do not want that at all. But I do want everybody to be able to break away a little bit and say, okay, I get what tradition is telling me and I'll value it, but I still want to find out what I think and what, what's my experience tell me. Because that's valuable too. And if we can find a balance there, then I think we can maybe start to discover a way to break down some of these walls and say, okay, I get what you're saying. There's validity there as long as you can get what I'm saying because I'm coming from a different place. And the, and- people, the people are saying that. I think you're right. And there is this, this tension that's built up to this I hope a point, but it, the point could still be way farther down the line than where we are. Yeah, And it comes back to our leadership, big science, big religion, because so many, when you look at it and you say, well, okay, let's say that somebody has an opinion. Well, big science and big religion can censor the shit out of that opinion of which we've seen and tailor it any which way they want. Absolutely. And it it doesn't bring us to the conclusion we want. We need the leadership of inclusivity and conversation from the groups that still have that, that I don't want to say the word authority, but they have that position where we look to them. And I feel like, to repeat myself, I feel like people are saying, no, I want unity. I, I want to have these conversations. And yeah. it feels like at the top, we're saying... We'll choose which conversations you can have right now. Mm. And if we don't reconcile that to get to where you're saying the positive result of that, more equanimity, more, I don't know, Ben, like I, it's so funny for me because yes, it was my generation and I was a cheerleader in all of it, but I find myself becoming more and more conservative <laughs> in, as I get older. <laughs> yeah, in the, in, I'm not thriving in the chaos of it. I'm, yeah. I'm like... Oh my gosh, this is too much for me. I 
can't handle it, you know? And I just, it's a weird place to be. I go back to that. It's a weird place to be. So what's, you know, what's your life? Well, sorry, you want to answer? No, no. I just think that, you know, it's fair what you're saying. And particularly right now, as we are hopefully coming out of the pandemic, you know, we're two years into this pandemic, the amount of stress that that has put on all of us has not helped at all. You know, and, and that is that is weighing all of us down. And that's one of the reasons why there's more division, because we just want somebody to blame. Mm-hmm. Well, those people are a convenient scapegoat for all this. But as you're saying, Joel, like, you know, you're sort of retreating a little bit and don't want the chaos anymore. Just want a little bit of security. Yeah. You know, let's not discount how much collective stress we have all been under these past two years. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that over the next few months, it will go away and we will sort of get back to normal, whatever that new normal is. And hopefully some things have changed, you know, like personally, I'm gunning for there being a lot less people commuting to work, you know, a lot more working from home, a lot more flexible working, man, can you imagine North American society without rush hour? Mm -hmm. Like talk about a stress-free life right there. That'd be awesome. I hope that as we come out of this, we will all sort of chill a little bit and maybe some of these conversations can start to happen a little bit more and we'll feel like having these conversations a little bit more. That's that's a great great way of saying it. He feel like having the conversation, and, and you know, so here here to that, and you know, maybe just to to bring things to a, to a uh, conclusion here. Do you do you have a life philosophy that you are that you sort of live by now that maybe you think others would benefit f- from if you shared it? Or well, I mean, it comes down to it's a practical thing, and that is just treat people the way I want to be treated. Really, that's it. Everything comes from there. You know, I, mean, I suppose I put my pastor hat on for a sec. That would be, you know, love one another is another way to say it. But, you know, as a practical level, like every time I interact with somebody in society, you know, talk to them the way I hope they would talk to me and, uh, and just treat them the way I hope, would hope they would treat me. And if we can all do that, then, you know, we'll have a much happier, happier world. I agree, Ben. So what are you working on? Is there any, is there anything, you know, that you didn't get a chance to share that maybe want to let the world know how the well, world, I mean, my, uh, <laughs> my loyal, my loyal few followers. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm actually interesting this year. I've made a bit of a pivot in my writing. I've been working on um, TV screenplays. Uh, it's the first time I've, I've really waded into that and it's definitely been a learning experience. Uh, first, first one I sent to my agent got sent back with remarkable speed, <laughs> basically saying, yeah, try again. But I've been I've been learning how to write screenplays. And uh, yeah, I've got one actually, a really fun fantasy screenplay that is with the, my agent right now, and it's with his guy in LA. Uh, so that's sort of being shopped around, which is cool. I'm working on another one with uh, another author. It's a sci-fi. It actually, as one of the main characters on this spaceship is a chaplain. So uh, that's going to be an interesting angle uh and we're not going to shy away from it either it's going to be cool and um the third one is new just starting to work on it now another tv screenplay uh it's basically looking back at my years in the early 90s at military college and i wanted to look at it a because it's a funny story because there's a lot of things on to a mill call but also with all of the allegations of sexual misconduct that the canadian military has been going through the last couple of years 
I realize this is a cultural thing. All the generals and admirals at the top, they're the guys who went through military college around the same time I did. And where did we, how did we get here? How did we get a culture like this? Where did it come from? And so I want to go back and explore the origins of my military career and the culture that I was thrown into in 1991. And I can uncomfortably see some connections between the culture that I was just thrown into then and some of the echoes that we're seeing today. So it's going to be it's going to be an interesting challenge to try and tell a story which is genuinely funny, uh, but also poignant and makes an important social statement. So my, my, my co-writer and I, she, she and I have sort of described it as it's the Wonder Years meets Full Metal Jacket <laughs> with a little bit of Trailer Park Boys thrown into. So uh, <laughs> that's kind of what we're working on right now. That's so uh, that one. That's that, a lot. You're busy. Yeah, still plugging. Well, you know, like I said writing is a compulsion yeah. and uh, I don't have time to write novels right now, but I can write screenplays because mm-hmm. they're not easier, but at least they're shorter. So uh, it's a it's a different challenge to take. Well, we'll we'll have you back on to talk, uh, continue our 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 religion meets science conversation. But we'll also talk about your success with one of these screenplays for sure. Because <laughs> I, I know if it's not one of these ones, it'll be the next one you write. You are you're just such an incredible talented artist, and and those who have the privilege of reading your work or like me, having their work read by you or edited or co-authored and learning from that. It's just, it's fantastic because you see the world so beautifully and you have such a great sense of humor and adventure. I I do not wish you to be sent off anywhere to have to fight. So we'll just put that up there. But I'm I'm excited for this revisit and new chapter back in the Navy for you. Somebody wants to check you out, not on Pinterest, as no pinstagram as you said uh you used to jokingly <laughs> say where can they uh, where can they find you ben yeah honestly the best place to look for me is on my website it's bennettrcoles.com and uh, you can learn all about what i've written who i am and uh, i have a blog and if you like star wars you'll really like my blog because i've been <laughs> writing a lot about star wars lately just because i don't want to write about politics so i'm writing about star wars so uh that's the best place to find me Star Wars is highly political, Ben. I watched, <laughs> I just watched them all with my kids this last year, and it's like, my gosh. <laughs> it, it is, but you can also ignore it. Too. I, I know. I, Ooh, <laughs> shiny lightsabers. <laughs> and that's Bennett with two T's. And I, I, I jokingly say that because the first version of our book that <laughs> went out on the, on the press tour <laughs> had one T. <laughs> yeah, two N's, two T's. Bennett R. Cole. And we'll have that in the notes, everyone. Ben, thanks so much. It's been so lovely catching up and uh, look forward to chatting soon. My love to the family as well. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Joel. It's been a real pleasure. Take care, everybody. As always, thanks so much for listening to The Ramble. No, there is a lot of podcasts out there. So we thank you for choosing to listen all the way through on this one. You know, we want to be part of the, the solution, the, the good questions, the things that move you and inspire you and make you want to connect deeper with yourself and others and all that great stuff. So if the spirit does move you, subscribe, share, post, anything. We'd be forever grateful. And if you have any comments or feedback, good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. We're here to listen. Guests you think we should have on. Of course, send them along. Thank you. And thank you.
Until next time, peace.